Morning, church. Great to be here this evening, and uh, we're continuing our study through the book of Judges. We're in Judges chapter 13 tonight. If you need a Bible, Greg is up, and he can get you one. Just raise your hand, and will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Judges chapter 13. Two reminders uh, before we get started. Men's prayer breakfast is coming up this Saturday, guys, at 8.30 a.m. down in the basement, and we'll have just great food, and so it'll be an awesome time. And then... Right after the men's breakfast, if you have time, Patrick is moving into their new house. And so if anyone can help out getting them moving after the prayer breakfast on Saturday, he would much appreciate that. And then uh, the third announcement is I'm just pleased and thrilled that my son Chris is here on leave from the Navy. So I can have Chris is here. So. Judges chapter 13, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to be in your word. Lord, Lord, knowing that you've called us to a time like this tonight, Lord, just to hear from you and to get out from among the world and come in among believers and to be able to be refreshed and rejuvenated, Lord, and to get our, our spiritual mind back where it needs to be, Lord, on you and just how great you are. Thank you for the sweet time of worship that we've experienced, Lord, and we just Pray your blessing now upon our time as we open up your word, Lord, that it would be fresh for us, Lord, and that um, we would glean not only information but application in our lives. Thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, an exciting section of scripture. I I think we'll get through chapter 15, but uh, starting verse 13, uh, you know, I read one commentator who called, or chapter 13 rather, I read one commentator who called this section of scripture, the lion, the wife, and the wardrobe. (laughs) It's interesting, because we're going to see raw animal passion, a lion attack, a stag party, a nag, and a heifer. (laughs) I like it. All in one story. It can only be the story of Samson. And so that look at, at verse 1. We read, again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Every week, you know, we seem to quote Judges chapter 2, verse 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. But this time, it's a little bit different. Because now you might say we are introduced to Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines. Now what we know of the Philistines is that they came from the lineage of Noah's son Ham. They were powerful warriors, so powerful that in fact that God did not want the Israelites to see what they were capable of when they first left Egypt. That's why he took them through the Red Sea instead. Listen to Exodus chapter 13 verse 17 and 18. Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said that lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. In other words, had Israel gone the way of the Philistines, they might have been freaked out if they encountered them and, and wanted to turn back, and so God said, I'm taking them a different way. Now, the Philistines really didn't become a factor in Israel's history until the day of Jephthah. That was back in chapter 10. In verse 7, we read that the anger of the Lord is hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Now, after that, the Philistines continue to be, 
an enemy of Israel throughout the days of the kings of Israel. Now, the physical enemies uh, of, of Israel in the Old Testament really often represent the spiritual enemies that we face today as believers. The Philistines represent our struggle with, against the flesh, as we will see. Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, that these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The wandering in the wilderness and warfare in the promised land are not simply historical incidents, but they're practical illustrations for our personal application. We're to learn lessons from them. One of them, even, even though we are set free, even though we are at liberty, lust will trip us up. And that's what we're going to see this evening in this classic example of Samson. Lust, as we will see, is simply not being satisfied with what God has given us or where God has placed us. Lusting after always something or someone different than what God has for us. Now let's look at verse 2. Now there was a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, we know that the angel of the Lord here is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament before he took on a human body in his birth. We see it, we'll see it more clearly as we go on. But the Lord appears to Mrs. Manoah. And springs on her this, this special announcement about a son and tells her that, that not only is she going to have a, a son, but he's going to be a, a Nazarite from the womb, from before he was even born. Now this reminds me of what Jeremiah the prophet wrote in Jeremiah 1.5, speaking of the Lord. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Before we were born, God knew us. God had a plan for our lives, a purpose for our lives. And, and He knows the beginning. He knows the end. He knows everything about us. And, and He calls us to live set-apart lives. Not the, the Nazarite vow, not to the extreme of that as we'll see, but, 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 but to live set-apart lives. Now, that the Nazarite vow was made by man or woman to dedicate themselves to the Lord. It was a time of separating oneself unto the Lord. But back then, it went a little bit further. If you took the Nazarite vow, you would abstain from the fruit of the vine, not only alcohol, but vinegar, grape juice, grapes, raisins. You would not cut your hair during this whole time of this vow, and you're not to be defiled by touching a corpse. That vow usually was for a fixed period of time from 30 to 100 days. And at the end of the time, the man would then immerse in water, cut his hair, and make an offering that included a lamb, a new a ram, and a basket of bread and cakes. Now, we know the Nazarite vow carried all the way into the New Testament and uh, the early church. In fact, in, Acts 8, in the book of Acts, verse, chapter 18, verse 18, we read that the apostle had his hair cut off when he came to the century because he had taken that Nazarite vow. Acts chapter 21, that we, we, we read about four other men who had taken that vow. Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus was a Nazarene. But that's just because he was born in Nazareth. It doesn't have anything to do with the Nazarite vow. The words just sound the same. Now, in the case of Samson, God actually made this vow for him before he was born. That just reminds us that, that our children are known to God. And we should desire his will for their lives. 
Samson was to be a Nazarite from conception. His mother was to abstain from alcohol lest he, he break the vow before birth. See, God had set this person apart from the womb for this special mission. So look at verse 6. So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of the angel of God. Very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Now, I find it interesting that God spoke to Mrs. Manoah first. And she takes what, what he says and, and takes it, you know, relays it to her husband. So guys, how do you feel when your wife relays some word from the Lord to you? I mean, do you, do you take it seriously? Or do you go, oh, come on, everybody knows that. <laughs> and you pretend like you, you do that when you really don't know that. And, and, and you're just some, the most profound thing you've ever heard, but you don't want to do that because you're just humiliated because God didn't speak to you in the same way he just spoke to your wife. But notice also, Mrs. Mano went right to her husband and shared what the Lord has shown her. I mean, do, do you, wife, bring what the Lord shows you to your husband, that he might be blessed by what God has spoken to you and laid on your heart? Well, Mr. Manoah trusted his wife's revelation and, and brings it to the Lord himself in prayer. Look at verse 8. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, my Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for the child who will be born. I love this about Manoah. I mean, he wants to be a good parent. He wants to do what God wants him to do. You know, he, he's praying. Lord, come to us again so, so we know what to do. Help us to be good parents. Help us to lead our children in your ways. Listen, don't let, any, let, let anyone fool you. Parenting is not easy. And, and, and I know if you have kids, you know that. And we need to be always seeking the Lord constantly on their behalf. I found this illustration about parenthood. Ten things about being a parent. Number one, being a parent is like being pecked to death by a duck. Raising teenagers is a lot like nailing jello to a tree. Number three, your life's golden age is a period in your life when your kids are too old to require a babysitter and too young to take the car. Number four, shouting at your children to get cooperation is about the same as steering your car using the horn. Same results. <laughs> Number five, a home temperature is best maintained by warm hearts, not cold words or hot heads. Number six, the joy of motherhood, what a woman experiences after she puts the last child to bed. Number seven, cleaning house with the children at home is a lot like shoveling snow during a blizzard. I like that one. Any child can tell you that the sole purpose of a middle name is so that he or she can tell when they are really in trouble. Number nine, practice what you preach, even covers never letting them see you snag those ding-dongs before breakfast. Number ten, the only true child experts are those who do, that do not have any children of their own. All the more reasons we, as, as parents especially, need to be praying for our kids, no matter how old they are. So Manoah prays. He's seeking the Lord on behalf of his soon-to-be-born son. Verse 9, And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel Lord came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field. But Manoah, her husband, her husband was not with her. Now, it's interesting to me that we read that God heard Manoah's prayer, but responded to his wife. Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but it would seem to me that the Lord is treating them as if they were one. They were united in heart and, and purpose. The Lord knew that if you spoke to one, you were speaking to both of them. Yeah, Manoah was the head, his wife the helper, but it was all in the unity and that oneness that honored the Lord. 
But I do want to say again that normally our wives are more spiritually discerning than we are men because our wives are more sensitive. That's just the way the Lord made them. So, when, you know, that it seems that they can sense the Lord speaking to their hearts easier than we can sometimes. Or I think maybe because we're just so hard-headed and, and insensitive. Verse 10. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah rose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? He said, I am. Manoah said, now let your words come to pass. What will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. In other words, the Lord is giving her prenatal prescriptions. (laughs) No, ladies, you should be careful what you take in when you're pregnant and make certain sacrifices at that time. It's also true that we as parents should make the necessary sacrifices in our own lives in order to raise our children in the ways of the Lord. We take the, the prenatal spiritual precautions. And how about maybe some, some postnatal precautions as well? Being careful that we have a strong, healthy spiritual diet, taking in God's Word in order to raise spiritually strong children. Well, then we read verse 15. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you and we will prepare a young goat for you. See, they didn't realize that they're talking to Jesus. So they want to give this prosper, proper hospitality. And Manoah asked the messenger to stay for dinner and, and he basically said, hey man, stick around. Let, let's throw some sheep on the old barbie, you know, goat on a barbecue and we'll, we'll have a feast. Well, verse 16. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, though you detain me, I will not eat your food, but if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Now, the Lord's not being rude by refusing their food. He was simply letting them know that everything he has promised them was from grace, not putting them under any obligation. It wasn't, well, I need to pay back. I need to do this because what you're doing. No, nothing you can do to earn what I'm going to do for you and your son. But then he tells them, if you want to express their thanks, it should be as an offering to the Lord. At this point, I think the lights are coming on for Manoah. Sometimes with us men, it takes a little bit longer. And you can picture Manoah just kind of thinking, hmm, wait a second, there's something different about this guy. He doesn't want to eat with us. He wants us to make a sacrifice. Huh. Look at verse 17. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name that when your words come to pass, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? Don't you love that verse right there? I, I, thought, I think that's great. Again, we have a Christophany, a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ. His name is wonderful. Now, what do you think of Isaiah 9, verse 6? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His name is Wonderful. Same angel of the Lord that spoke to Abraham, appeared to Moses in the burning bush, stood in Balaam's donkey's way, and commissioned Gideon. Verse 19. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. It happened as a flame went up towards heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flames of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now, it may have been Mrs. Manoah in the beginning, but they're both now, they're both in there, they're worshiping the Lord. They fell on their faces to the ground. Then verse 21 When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, 
we shall surely die because we've seen God. But his wife said to him, if the Lord has desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands. Nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things at these at this time. I mean, isn't this funny? I mean, the husband, he's crying out to the wife, and the wife is the one who has his wits about her. He's saying, oh no, we're going to die, honey. We're going to die. We've seen the Lord. And she says, would you just stop it? If we were going to die, we would have died a long time ago. It wouldn't have happened. If the Lord desired to kill us, he would have. Once again, us guys, we don't always have the spiritual insights. But here's the one thing I do like. I like that Manoah could, could share his spiritual fears with his wife. And that she was there to comfort him. That They had this communication. They had open communication. He's saying, man, I don't know about this. He's honest with her. And she's saying, man, I'm just comforter. And they come together. Now, they had a great relationship in the Lord together. Finally, verse 24. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Mahanad, Dan, between Zorah and, and Estel. Now, at this point, we can assume that Mrs. Manoah followed the prenatal prescription. Still, with all her preparation, Samson needed uh, the Spirit of God upon him. His mom and dad could only do so much. It was, it was a lot, but he, he must walk with God for himself. That's why verse 25 says, And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him. That's upon Samson. Now, sometimes we see God using certain people in amazing ways and we begin to think, well, well, God can never do that with, with me or, or God can never use me that way. Listen, everybody had a, a starting place. And just be open to what God has for you to do and see by the power of the Holy Spirit what God can do in your life. Verse 24 says, As Samson grew, the Lord blessed him. Now, with God's blessing comes great responsibility. Jesus said, "To much is given, much is required. In other words, for all that God has blessed us with, He simply asks us to be faithful with what He's given us. Now, thankful He's faithful when we're not, but God desires to reward us for our faithfulness. And He can't do that if we're being unfaithful. Oh, Lord, why don't you bless me with, with more finances because you're not being faithful with the funds that I've given you. See, God looks for faithfulness. Now, before we take a closer look at Samson, we need to get out of our minds this picture of this huge muscle-bound four Chris Hemsworth type of guy, you know, you know, flexing his muscles, you know, this type of, I am Samson. Why? Well, because we're going to see that he could stroll through the Philistine cities relatively anonymous. In other words, he was average, pretty ordinary, which makes this even more amazing because that means that everything extraordinary that he did was, was as a result of the Spirit of God coming down upon him. And the thing to bear in mind is as we see Samson is that God intended him to, to be a lifelong Nazarite. He was to be separated to the Lord, but instead we'll see that he, he doesn't, doesn't do that. He's on his way to party in the Philistine territory. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 14. Now Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore, get her for me as a wife. Gosh, this was lust at first sight. There's a Philistine woman. And a Philistine woman was simply out of the question for a Nazarite. One who's taken a Nazarite value. And also, like in some cultures today, in that culture, there's no dating as such. They had prearranged marriages. They were made by the parents, arranged marriages. 
And so, as you might guess, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah, they were not very happy. Look at verse 3. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. Now, this is going to be Samson's downfall all throughout life, his attraction to woman that keeps pulling him out of the, the will of God. Even when his father says, Son, she's a Philistine. Open your eyes. And he says, hey, she looks good to me. Now, this was godly counsel from dad. They know what's right. And they immediately warn him, son, don't go down this path. They know what Samson has planned is not the Lord's will. So they try to change his mind. They try to encourage him to marry a good Israelite girl. Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people? I mean, they're doing what any loving parent would do if they saw their child about to make a serious mistake. Don't do it. Stop. This isn't going to be good. See, it's exactly what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 4. Bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Listen, parents, your children may not appreciate it, but you have, you have the responsibility to warn, warn them when they're about to do something harmful in their lives. In fact, sometimes the Lord uses parents to hold up the stop sign right in front of our child. Yet despite the pleas from his parents, Samson had in his heart what he wanted to do and nothing was going to stop him. He says here, for she pleases me well. Literally, she is pleasing in my eyes. That may sound familiar to you as we've been going through the book of Judges because everyone was doing what was pleasing in their own eyes. And so he's just being like the rest of the people there. He, he was supposed to be separated. He was supposed to act like a judge. Uh, and he's acting just like the people. Doesn't care what his parents think. He doesn't care about what God thinks. He doesn't care about what's right and what's wrong. All he cares about is what he thinks. What he wants. What he feels. All he cares about is pleasing himself. So he disrespects his, his parents' wishes. Disrespects God's will. I mean this, this should have been a warning to Samson. Listen, when there's rebellion in the heart, that rebellion will manifest itself through disrespect for others and, and for the things of God. Because if you find yourself doing as you please with no regard for how your actions impact others, you're heading down a path of trouble. When you can care less about what, what God says in His Word, when you can care less about how your actions could hurt others, when you show no regard to people's feelings, you're heading for trouble. See, it's the desire to live for self. What I think, what I want, what I feel. It's a, and it, it's evident of a rebellious heart. It's, it's a warning sign that needs to be heeded. Disrespect for others, their feelings, their needs is a warning sign. There, there'll be consequences, as we'll see. You know, I think this is a, the greatest fear as a parent. That your son or, or, or daughter, even with the, with the best beginnings, will fail to follow the Lord. There's no doubt Samson fell short and it can break a parent's heart, but it should also encourage us as parents because we know the end of the story. If you've, if you've read the story of Samson, we know how God was with Samson as he repented and in the end he defeated the Philistines. And that's just an example for us. Train a child in the way that he should, when he's young, when he's old, he will not depart from it. So Samson goes to marry this Philistine. Look at verse 4. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines, for at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So was it God's plan for Samson to desire this Philistine woman? No. Again, Samson was a Nazarite. A relationship with her compromised everything. But what this verse teaches us is that God will overrule us to accomplish his purposes. Samson is in sin. 
lust, coveting, desiring to be unequally yoked, yet God is going to use Samson's sin, his lust and rage, to begin the deliverance of the Israelites from the Philistines. Again, most of, of, of his attacks against the Philistines stem from a woman being in the center of the situation and, and Samson getting angry. But it never ceases to amaze me how God uses everything, everything for good. You know, for those that love God and are called according to His purpose. The most ter- terrible tragedy, the most hateful and vindictive leader, the most sinful person. God can turn it around and, and use it for good in a person's life or in a situation or in a country. I think of the awful affliction <coughs> excuse me, that Joseph endured, sold into slavery by his own brothers, you know, falsely accused of, of sexual uh, attack by his owner's wife, abandoned in prison for years. And, and these are all working together for good, not only for Joseph's good, for the entire country. We know when Joseph finally met up with his brothers, he said in Genesis 50:20, "But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as this, to this day to save many people alive." See, God can take something meant for evil and turn it to good. God's will is fulfilled in many ways and not necessarily by godly people. Let that be an encouragement for you Trump haters. That God could, could use even him, you know. And Samson will spend much of his life following his sensual desire. Yet God is going to use it for Israel's deliverance from the Philistines. So with that, look at verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now to his surprise, the young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Now, we don't know what it's like to tear apart a young goat, the writers assuming that we do, but somewhere along this trip, Samson and his parents were, were separated. Samson's walking alone. Suddenly the Spirit of the Lord came upon him uh, as he was just able to tear this lion apart. And no doubt it took him by surprise. Maybe the lion won for his throat. You know, they're trapped within this powerful jaw. Suddenly the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him and, and this lion's nothing. Just tears him apart. Now we're not talking about a, you know, a baby lion or, or you know, a really, really old with no teeth lion. It, or, I'll get to you. Know. This is a, a dangerous beast, Okay. He tore the lion apart as one would have torn a young goat, though he had nothing in his hands. Now, what is strange to me is that Samson didn't say anything to his mom and dad about it. I mean, wouldn't that be the first thing that you got back to mom and dad and said, Dad, it was so cool. There was this lion that was like looking at me, and I was looking at him, and looked at me, and he pounced on me, and, and then it was like nothing to me. I said, mom, I tore him apart with my bare hands. I mean, we, we can't be certain why he kept quiet, but maybe, you know, maybe he's just embarrassed about spiritual things. Maybe he didn't want to hear his parents tell him again how they shouldn't, shouldn't be going down to, to marry the Philistine woman. It's, it's a sign and God is trying to stop you. Maybe he just didn't want to hear any of that. Who knows why? But they continue on in their journey. Look at verse 7. Then they went down and talked with the woman. And she pleased Samson well. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. I mean, Samson should not have turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. It was yesterday's victory. It was over. No, but, but, but he's looking back. and See, we need to be seeking the Lord for today's battle. But Samson, man, he's looking back. He's given in to that sweet tooth. He's given in to his flesh, and as we'll see him do again and again. 
Now, the significance of this is that a Nazarite was not to touch anything that was dead. That included roadkill, even if there was honey inside. You know, sin is, is the same way. We're to stay away from it. Even though the Bible says it's pleasurable for a season, it's still sin. All that looks sweet. All that looks pleasurable. There's consequences. And that's what we'll see here. Now, to say that Samson took being a Nazarite lightly would be an understatement. Look at verse 10 now. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with them. So as was custom, Samson threw a week-long wedding party. Since he was in a foreign town, the Philistines provided 30 guests to go. Uh, hey, you, know, you don't have anybody, let's bring 30 people to come out. And this word for feast here indicates that this is a, a drinking banquet. So there was, there was alcoholic wine. I mean, sadly, in just a few verses, Samson has broken all kinds of the Nazarite vows, touching a dead carcass, drinking wine, these things. Verse 12. Then Samson said to them, Let me pose a riddle to you. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, Pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now for three days they could not explain the riddle. The custom remains today wherein the groom gives the groomsmen his, his wedding party small gifts as tokens of his appreciation. You see it even in, in weddings today. With so many guys to buy for, 30 of them here, Samson devises a plan where he wouldn't be out the money for these gifts. He would give the groomsmen the gift of clothes if they can answer his, his riddle, which, which he knew they couldn't. Then, be, see, then, then they would have to give him the gifts. And so he's, he's, you know, he's kind of pulling, tweaking this, this, this thing here going. And, and not, not a surprise that Samson would want these clothes and everything else because it's all about him, you know, how he looks and, and dressing up his flesh rather than denying it. I mean, Samson knew that what he did was wrong in eating the honey and it was kind of bragging about it in the, in the riddle. You know, he knew it was wrong, but he, he kind of wanted to brag about it secretly. Look at verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? Well, unable to guess and figure out this riddle, the Philistines intimidate his fiancée, threatening her and her father's house with death if she doesn't find the answer from Samson, from his riddle. So verse 16. Then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have posed a riddle to the sons of my people, but you have not explained it to me. Did you ever watch The Little House in the Prairie? Remember Nellie Olson? You hate me. You don't love me. You know, I'm so abused. Look at verse 16. Again, Samson replies. And he said to her, look, I have not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? Now she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted. Oh, my goodness. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her because she pressed him so much. Then she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. Crying for seven days until he finally gives in and, and he tells her the answer to the riddle. What does she do? She goes right back to her people and blabs it to them. And what does Samson expect? He shouldn't be with her in the first place. Now, there's one thing that's noteworthy here. Samson does comment about not revealing to his parents. He says, I didn't tell even my mom and dad. 
In one sense, he's leaving and cleaving. And that, that's a good thing. We know that Jesus taught that, that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Until you cut those ties, you cannot know the intimacy that God intends in, in a marriage relationship. Well, verse 18. So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed my, with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. So this was the woman of his dreams. He saw her and she pleased her. He had to have her seven drunken days later. She's a heifer. My, how things change so quickly. Listen, it's not so much about long engagements as it is about character. Look beneath the surface and be certain of the values and the character of a potential spouse. Again, raw animal passion, a lion attack, a stag party, a nag, and a heifer. What a story. But because they had the answer to the riddle, Samson now needed 30 changes of clothing to pay his debt. He's got to pay up. So verse 19. Well, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who had explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. So it got him out of trouble. I mean, God... God got him out of trouble. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, you know, to judge the Philistines, and, 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 and he did, and, and in order to pay Samson's debt. Got him out of a, a bad relationship and even used him as a judge. Yet instead of repenting, Samson's anger was aroused. He, he didn't see the Lord working graciously in his life. Again, Samson's on his second strike in terms of, of the law governing a Nazarite. He touched a dead animal. He drank wine. One more strike, and he's out. And that'll happen in chapter 16 when, when he gets his hair cut, but we won't get to that tonight. But look at verse 20. And Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. Now, obviously, Samson's relationship with his wife wasn't what it should have been. Samson should have heeded his parents' warning, you know, and, and, and going into an unequally yoked marriage, the, you know, it would have problems. Reminds me of a story about a preacher who was performing a wedding when he came to the part of the ceremony in which it was tradition to ask if anyone present knows any reason why the wedding should not proceed. The preacher asked that, and a voice rang out through the church, I do. Quiet, the preacher said, you're the groom, you can't object. <laughs> now, I've never conducted a wedding like when that's happened, but, but, but judging by the staggering divorce rate in our culture, maybe there should be more wedding ceremonies that are brought to a halt because someone objects to the marriage. That's why God seriously warns about being unequally yoked in marriage relationship. You're going to open up to all sorts of problems. Amos 3, 3 tells us, can two walk together unless they are agreed? I mean, just think about Samson's relationship with his wife. Not that, that, that his wife's ready better, but, but look at Samson. We know that he married her for her looks. We know that he kept secrets from his new wife. We know that after she was terrorized and threatened and betraying Samson, Samson calls her a heifer and then leads in a fit of rage. What a great honeymoon, you know? What happens next is so typical. Samson finally cools down, but then you might say he heats back up again because after a while, Samson starts thinking about his Philistine wife. Look at verse 1 of chapter 15. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat, and he said, let me go into my wife, into her room. But her father would not permit him to go. Samson hadn't seen his wife for quite some time, he shows up with a gift thinking he'll go in and have sexual relations with her. Hey, I brought you a goat. Now do for me. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks. I mean, just see how, how selfish and self-centered Samson is here, thinking only of himself. 
I mean, he's not only dense, he's very selfish. Let me talk about, you. talk to you married men just for a moment. Man, if you treat your wives with disrespect, you don't honor her as a weaker vessel, if you don't love her as Christ loved the church, don't think by bringing a bouquet of flowers home or a goat every now and then that it's going to solve everything. I know I've treated you all horribly all week, but here's a bouquet of flowers. Let's be intimate. That's not the way it works. Let me tell you this. If you do treat your wife with respect, honor her as a weaker vessel, love her as Christ loved the church, I assure you, you won't need flowers. So here's Samson. He wants to be intimate with his wife, yet the girl's dad saw right through it. Look at verse 2. Her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. Oh, gosh. Listen, people can tell a lot about how you really feel towards your spouse by how you treat them. The dad says, I saw the way you treated my daughter by calling her a heifer. I thought you hated her. And sadly, in some marriages from both sides, the way they talk with each other, you would think that they totally hate each other. But here is Samson's father-in-law, perhaps out of fear for his own life, was willing to give Samson his, his younger daughter, presumably, as a wife. But Samson refuses, and he refuses to take any blame for his failed marriage. And then when he discovers that her father had given her to someone else, he goes on a rampage once again. Look at verse 3. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson, Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. It's interesting, the word for foxes could also be translated jackals. Jackals are actually a little more aggressive and more dangerous than foxes, but not to Samson. I mean, he ties their tails together and puts a torch between them. 300 of them. Could you imagine the time that it takes to do that? Come here, come here. Torch. Okay, two more. I mean, he's doing this. Just kept grabbing them tail after tail, tail after tail. Uh, you know, just amazing. Then he sets them on fire, you know, and goes grab some more. Then think of the damage that they would cause. I mean, the bottom line is the Philistine crop and harvest was completely ruined. He burned up the Philistine fields. The vineyard destroyed their food supply. Now again, God is using Samson to defeat the Philistines, even though his motives weren't always the best. But one of the acts of violence now leads to another. Look at verse 6. Then the Philistine said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he had taken his wife and given her to his companion, so the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Whoa. Talk about holding parents accountable. I mean, in this case, they, they, they held the in-laws accountable. See, what the Philistines did was wrong. Still, it reminds us that our failures at home affect others. People say, well, we're getting a divorce because it's better for our kids to not see its fight. No, it would be better for you to stay married and not fight. Verse 7. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and high with a great slaughter, then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Hip and thigh is an expression like from head to toe. Basically, Samson destroyed the guys from head to toe. He cleaned their clock. He wiped them out. Verse 9. Now the Philistines went up and camped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he had done to us. 
Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etim and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hands of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hands, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. See, at this point, Samson was Philistine public enemy number one. And they're going to go, they're going to get him. So they go to attack Judah and demand Israel that, that Samson be turned over for justice. But instead of fighting against the Philistines or even taking a stand, what do they do? Okay, we'll go get him. See, they'd rather be oppressed by the Philistines than stand up and fight for what is right. See, after all, up until this now, everything Samson did was for selfish motives. He lived in the flesh of the Israelites. They're not taking any chances. They send 3,000 men to apprehend him and turn him over to the Philistines. Yet here again, Samson finally shows his faith in God by allowing him to be bound. He evidently believed that God's Spirit would come upon him and he would have great victory. And he does. Look at verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out of his hand and took it, and he killed a thousand men with it. You know, the Philistines were the most advanced metal workers of the day. They had the very finest weaponry, yet nothing, no weapon, none of their weapons meant anything to God. In Judges chapter 3, Shamgar killed 600 of them with an ox goad, here a thousand were killed with the jawbone of a donkey. Later on, David would, would slay a fierce giant with what? One smooth stone. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, the weak to overcome the strong. And he wants it made known that it's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. That's why, again, I think we need to get the, the idea of a, a Chris Hemsworth Thor guy out of our minds and maybe picture someone like, I don't know, Steve Urkel. I, I don't know, some skinny, scrawny kid. Because God is doing this work through the Spirit of God comes upon Samson. In the same way, with the Spirit of God upon our lives, there's nothing that the Lord calls us to do that we can't do. Verse 16, Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramothly High. So verse 16, Samson is trying to be a poet. He says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. Which literally translated is, with the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in mass. So, uh, you know, not really a gifted poet, I guess. But it's funny thing. One commentator said that the name Ramath Lehi means jawbone heights. Referring to the deep, you know, the heap of uh, uh, dead Philistines. So where do you live? I live in jawbone heights. I, I, I don't know. Well, with all this going on, Samson works up a thirst. Look at verse 18. Then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name and Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day, and he judged Israel twenty years in the days of the Philistines. You know, killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey can work quite up a thirst, and, and Really, this is a high point of the story. Samson realizes his humanity. He realizes his helplessness. 
with the simple absence of water, he's crying out to the Lord for his provision. And even though Samson reacted in his flesh, he still had a love for the Lord. He went on to judge Israel for 20 relatively peaceful years. Samson gave God the glory. You know, we, we hesitate to say it because it sounds like we're condoning his sin, but we're not. You, you know, you just can't, you can't pour the baby out with the bathwater. Samson was a man used mildly by God. Yes, he had his failings and he had his struggles, and, but he's seen a lot actually in the New Testament as one of the giants of faith there in Hebrews chapter 11. So here we see in delivering Israel, if only he had kept that goal before him. You know, if, if it ended here, that would be great. You know, and, and he did in the ways of the Lord, and, and that was it, and he died. It, it'd be great. But no, he's got, you know, we'll see his downfall when he has to get a haircut, and we'll see all that next week. With that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for uh, showing us what it means to keep a commitment. Lord, committed to you, Lord, committed to live for you. We see how the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life really affected Samson. Lord, those areas that, that, that he looked at, Lord, he wanted people to know what he did. He, you know, he wanted to look good. He wanted, you know, the, 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 the lust of the eyes. He wanted this Philistine woman. Lord, all temptations that we're told that, that to resist, Lord, that can bring us down. Lord, yet in spite of his failings, Lord, in spite of his struggles with sin, Lord, you used him in mighty ways, Lord. And we know, Lord, that we are imperfect vessels, Lord. Help us, Lord, to live holy lives. Help us to live committed lives that, that we might be vessels fit for your use, Lord God. We thank you, Lord, for this story of Samson as we continue to, to look at it, Lord, even, even next week, Lord, and we just see you moving and working. We, we pray, Lord, that uh, you'd bless us this week. Lord, help us to keep our minds and hearts focused on you, Lord God. Help us to walk in your ways, to please you. Thank you for this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand on